You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 134 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Uh, well, if you'd read my blog post this week, Valerie, you would know that I am keeping my head above water, but only just. Yes, and I did notice that you, you know, you were hashtag keeping it real, hashtag write a book with Al, and uh, during NaNoWriMo, for those of you who are doing NaNoWriMo, you did yes. have a, I noticed there was a zero day at some point. Two zero days. Two let's, zero days. Let's be real, keeping it real here. Two How zero days. How did you feel? Yeah. Well, look, it was one of those things that, remember I said to you at the start of the month when I started that this was like, that I was about to embark upon about the busiest month that I've had in, I don't know, six. Mm. And um, that I did feel that things were going to get wobbly. Um, Mm. And they did. And it was, they got wobbly on the weekend that I thought they would get wobbly when I had a workshop and a meeting and a school fate and, uh, you know, all of the things that you have that life throws at you. Mm. So I had two zero days and I think it's important to, um, I, to share them, you know, because I share my word counts all the time. And if I suddenly go quiet on the days where it doesn't work out, then that's not helpful to anyone, is it? Mm. So um, how did it make me feel? It made me feel oh, resigned, I think. And I think it's Gosh. also important to note that I got back on the horse yesterday with, you know, two, or what did I do? 1,800 words or something oh, well like done. that. Yeah, so it's um I think I think it's too easy to be so disheartened by a couple of zero days when your graph is just disappears into nothingness mm. and you're suddenly looking like finishing on, you know, January the third. Um, I think that it's important to remember the that, you know, my rule is that every word that you have on November thirty that you didn't have on November one is a win. And yes. it's a win. So, you know, I'm currently sitting at around about eighteen thousand words. I think I'm supposed to be at about twenty three or 24 or something. And I still firmly do not believe that I will get to 50. Um, I'm going to, you know, I'll give it a crack. I'm going to write every day that I can. And I'm going to write even the days that I can't, I'll try and get 200 on. But Mm. at the end of the day, um, if I get to the end of this month and I have a good portion of this book done, I will be very, very happy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, good on you for persisting. And yeah, well, you know, you've got to work around what you've got to work around. And I think that that's, and it's, it's that, it's that, Tomorrow is another day feeling, um, that resilience of knowing that you are going to have zero days when you're mm. trying to reach a word count goal. You are. It's just a simple matter of life. Um, but knowing that you can, you know, pick it up again the next day and that's the important thing. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, a great example to follow for everyone else who's doing NaNoWriMo or those people who took my advice last week and are doing NaNoWriHalfMo. And <laughs> because, you know, it, it is easy to get disheartened sometimes when you don't have a cracker of a day, but just get back on that horse. Keep the momentum going. Keep those sprints up. You know, you do mm-hmm. the uh, – Al does the 530 – hashtag 530. Hashtag 530. And do you know yeah. what? It's been so great because I've seen um, on Twitter several people who have tagged me um, that they've started doing it and it's working really well for them, that they're adding drip, 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 adding to their um, to their word count and I think that that's great. And the other thing I think is really important to remember too is that, you know, I got to about 15,000 word mark and I was like, what am I even writing here? Mm. Like what is this mm-hmm. ever going to be? Where's it going? This is terrible. And mm-hmm. you know what? I saw it around about the same time, Anna Spugger Ryan had a post saying the same thing. <laughs> Everybody goes through those days where yes. it's just like, this is terrible. But you can't edit a blank page. And that's the that's really right. important thing to remember. Like I will go back and there's obviously going to need to be some editing done on this thing, lots of editing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I've got something to work with and I think that that's really important, really important. Absolutely. Remember. All right. So we want to give a big shout out this week to Z. L. Arnott for uh, leaving a review on iTunes and ZL Arnott has said depth of information fun and interesting and they've said I listen to this podcast several times a week while running walking or just doing things around the house I love the diversity of topics covered from copywriting journalism to fiction writing I love the depth of useful information and tips I particularly enjoy the interviews with writers it's so fascinating learning about how writers in various genres and settings approach their craft and build a career as an author love your work Valerie and Allison oh well, well there you go thanks for that and you know what I would have to say and this is a fantastic segue but I would say that ZL Arnott's first name is Zanny oh. and it just so happens that the first link that you have chosen for us this week comes from Zanny Louise and really? her book, My Little Sunshine House. I oh, know, you didn't know that, goodness. did you? I did not know that. <laughs> I love it. Oh, wow. The well, connections. This is how it works. That's fantastic. Let's move on to that first link. It's from the blog called My Little Sunshine Gypsies. And it is, you're right, it's by Zanny. And uh, Zanny wrote a post, and we'll put the link in the show notes, of course, which you can find at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. But uh, Zanny wrote a post called 15 Great Resources for Aspiring Children's Authors. And amongst the 15 uh, is, what do, you, what do you think's there, Al? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Zanny has said the Australian Writers' Centre, and she has said the Australian Writers' Centre offers a range of online and face-to-face courses. And uh, she also says she listens to the Australian Writers' Centre podcast. So you want to be a writer, I'm which uh, has tips and advice about publishing, as well as great interviews with successful authors. So thank you so much, Zanny, for including us in your in your fifteen. 15- 15 great resources. Really appreciate it. 
Well, yes, and I think that this just goes to show you that if you write great content, it, people will come to it from lots of different angles because you and I didn't discuss this link before we put it into the into the show notes, into, right. the, into the show. And I have shared this link widely, separately, completely independently because mm. it is such a great list and it um, talks about lots of different things that children's authors uh you know, lots of great resources for them. And obviously, you know, she talks about us, which is awesome. But also she talks about the various associations that are fantastic resources for uh, children's authors, one of which is the Children's Book Society of Writers and Illustrators, mm. um, who, of course, had their conference recently that yes. you spoke at, Valerie, which was great. Yes. Um, but the other one I would really like to give a shout-out to is a little magazine. It's a mm. zine, an e-zine, a newsletter zine. Not exactly how you. Not exactly how you sort I of put it together. Easy, easy, yeah. yeah. So it um it you subscribe to it. It uh, it's a fortnightly publication. It's produced by Di Bates. It's called mm. Buzzwords. It's a fantastic little newsletter for industry news, opportunities, awards, grants, tips, advice, interviews. It's a great place to put your work. She um she offers opportunities for aspiring authors to share bits and pieces of their work. She has a, a little section there specifically for self-published children's authors to share their work, to get the news out about their work. And I tell everyone I talk to that sort of wants to talk to me about, you know, children's writing mm. to subscribe to this because if you want to know what's going on in the industry in Australia um, in particular, although there is also an overseas section, yes. um, then it is most definitely worth the $48 a year or whatever it is that, that mm. um, a subscription costs because, if you want to write for kids and you want to be published writing for kids, you need to know what's going on and you need to see what's being published and you need to see which publishers are actively seeking manuscripts, which is something that Di does put into her newsletter. So if, um, there's a link within Zanny's um, uh, blog post about that little zine and I think it's definitely worth um, um, you know linking up to if you're interested in that. Yeah, absolutely. Great resource. Mm -hmm. And one of the resources that I like that she's mentioned is your local library. I have mm. to say, I love my local library and I, I just think it's great. It's not very big, uh, but it just it's just such a great place to be, such a great place to browse, such a great place to write. Mm. Um, most libraries I love, I always make a point of trying to go into the state library of whatever capital city I might be in. But mm -hmm. here's an interesting thing, and I wanted to ask you. Now, do you you go to your local library, don't you? Yeah, all the time. Are your librarians friendly? Yeah, they're really friendly. They're fantastic. In fact, oh. we're on a first-name basis. Oh, and really? They love, and my boys go to – so uh, Book Boy goes off to a – once a month, he goes to a writer's group that they, that they hold there oh, that's wow. for kids aged, I think, 10 to 14 or something. So he goes off to that and they have story time. They're, they're fantastic. And their children's librarians are so good with the kids. It's it's wonderful. Oh, mm, okay. Why? Why? Well, why do you ask me? I'm just wondering because, like, I love the my library, you know, as a place. Um, but the librarians, are they're nice. They're not unfriendly. They're just a little bit unusual. I, okay. I, don't, I guess I better not really just <laughs> don't go any further than that. <laughs> I have to say, though, that I will put a link in the show notes to show you the kind of librarians that you're dealing with in my local area okay. because our um, – our the sort of regional head office of our library sort of group uh, put together a YouTube video right. that went nuts around oh Christmas God. last year. They 
it's a sort of a, a their own version of Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh my god! Um, it's all book related. They filmed really? it in the library, and <gasps> it's absolutely hilarious. So I will share that on um, in the show notes because Put that I think in the show notes for sure. I think it's very important that you see what you know what librarians are doing out there right now. Wow. Okay. Not at your library, but at mine. Yeah, maybe I would say not at my library. Um, (laughs) Okay. Um, Where are we? That's right. We've got some news in the world of publishing and reading and, and, and books. Good. What is it? Yes. Well, do you use Spotify? Uh, no, I, it's one of those things I've been meaning to sign up to for about two years and have failed to do so. So okay. it, it's on my list of things to do. How about Netflix? Uh, also on my list of things. Okay, to do. so anyway, I'm actively not actively not signed up to Netflix because until I finished the my car, I, I knew I had a really big year of writing, mm-hmm. and I felt I cannot sign up to something like that and lose my life Fair to binge enough. watch television. So yes. I, use it as I, a reward. I am. The boys yes. and I are ready. We're going to sign up for Christmas. It's all happening. Oh, great. Well, yeah. as people anyway. know, Spotify is a streaming service where you pay a certain amount of money per month and you can stream and listen to any all the music that you want. And Likewise, Netflix, you pay a certain amount of money per month, like 10 bucks or something, and you can watch all of the TV shows or movies or whatever that you want that are on Netflix. Well... Amazon's Kindle Unlimited service has just launched in Australia and it's basically like Netflix but for ebooks. So in a similar fashion, you'll be able to pay a certain amount of money per month. Um, I think like $13.99 and, uh, per month. Uh, and then you can read all of the Kindle books that are uh, – that are associated with that offer um, as much as you want. So if you're a big reader, then Kindle Unlimited will – you'll be like a kid in a candy shop. And the first 30 days is free for a trial period, after which if you decide to stay, it's thirteen ninety nine a month. So that's a massive development in the world of Amazon. Well, it's a massive development in the world of, of readers in Australia. It's I have to say that as an author, I don't love it. And mm. I know that there's been a lot of blog posts, you know, space has been has been turned over to to um, Kindle Unlimited and what it means for authors. Mm. Um, I haven't looked into it for quite a while, but last time I checked, you know, authors were being paid per page that, yeah. you know, they got paid sort of a tiny, tiny amount per page that people actually read of the book. Um, so you don't get a set amount, you know, if someone downloads your book, you get this per page thing. Um, so it's, look, I, as a reader, fab. As an <laughs> author, maybe not so fab, but not anyway. So fab, yeah. yeah. Well, I would need to, I would need to, as I said, I haven't actually looked at it closely for a little while now because, my, you know, it was, it was this available in the States and didn't really affect me that much. But yeah. it's um, one of those things that I think we should keep an eye on and see, Definitely. you know, what the impact might be for authors down the track. We'll report back in six months' time. We will. Let's. So I came across a nice little uh, post called How to Write Dialogue in a Story, colon, Seven Steps for Great Exchanges. And it's from a uh, website called nownovel.com and we'll put the link in the show notes. And I thought that they were really useful, straightforward but useful and just useful things that we need to remember. And the first one is really basic. Understand how to format dialogue, even, you know, just with your punctuation because mm-hmm. it's surprising the amount of manuscripts that I see where the dialogue has just got wonky formatting, not 
through a printing error, but because the writer obviously has not known how to punctuate. So definitely understand how to format dialogue, but also very important is cut filler. Oh my goodness. I've read so many manuscripts where for pages and pages and pages, it's dialogue. Mm. And I lose track for a start of who's talking unless there are appropriate indicators. But Mm. sometimes even when there are appropriate indicators, it's just, it's just, it's just boring, to be honest, and mm. it's exposition, and it should be much more of a show don't tell. And I think that uh, a show don't tell scenario. And I think that the writers think that if they are putting it in dialogue, they're not telling us; they're showing us because they're showing people talking. But that's mm. not in fact the case, is it? Not, no, you- not always. And I think that comes down to that very important number five point in this particular blog post, which is to ask yourself every time, mm. how does this conversation further the story? Oh, absolutely. Like, does it actually have a point? Um, and it can't just be because I need to tell the reader something. Like that's mm. actually not a good reason to have that sort of have that dialogue there. There has to be some kind of um, every scene that you write has to move your story forward in some way or every yes. scene that you include, let's say that because, you know, I'm I'm contemplating the fact that I'm probably going to have to cut, you know, 5,000 words out of my 18,000-word manuscript already. But just, you know, as you edit as well is some is often like write it all down if that's what you need to do. And then as mm. you edit, read through that dialogue and ask yourself, does this conversation actually need to be here yeah. or can I actually impart this information in another way? Yeah. you know, in a much more succinct way or in a different part of the story or, you know, something like that. Because um, as you say, I think sometimes it can be a way out of, you know, I'm going to just dump all this information here in this conversation and mm. that's going to be important um, and this this will get me out of having to work out another way to do it. So, um, yeah, think about that as you're going through. And I think the other thing to always remember too is um, – Reading dialogue aloud is actually a, mm. I mean, it sounds like such a basic thing, but if you read it aloud, you can hear. You know, would your character actually go, "All right, then, Valerie, <laughs> I will do that." You know, or will your character just actually go, "Oh, all right then." Um, yeah. So think about whether it sounds natural uh, when you read it aloud because they're they don't always. And I, I have a terrible habit of putting the name in, a terrible habit. <laughs> okay, then, Valerie, let's go now. And then you go, oh, no, that sounds ridiculous when you read it out loud. It's very yeah. important. But, yeah. Absolutely. Read out loud is definitely a good one. And I think, though, sometimes people, especially when writing a novel, they rely too much on dialogue to explain what's happening in the story and Mm. sometimes that's unavoidable if you're writing a screenplay because there's only because unlike novels you can't sort of tell an entire backstory in a movie because it would take you know hours and hours and hours Mm -hmm. Uh, so often characters in a movie or a television show are kind of explaining things but in a novel that's a and even if even in the screenplay that should be minimized where possible but in a novel it should be minimized even more because there are other ways to tell that backstory or other ways to you know give impart as you say that information Mm. Um, I know in my Sorry. No, no, go on. No, you go. You are still talking and I've interrupted you. Just just what you should not do in dialogue. No, actually, it's what you should do in dialogue because that's what people do, it's right? It's natural, yes. No, yes. well, my, my partner first um, uh, discovered exposition 
or what examples of exposition. He couldn't help himself every time he watched TV. They, you know, the character on Hawaii Five-O or whatever would explain why the criminal ended up yes. doing that yes. and he would always say, oh, yes, that's exposition. So yes. every single night I was being told the examples of exposition, which, of course, I knew, but anyway. It's okay. It's, it's good to have something to share, Val. It's, yes, it's all right. Keeping you together. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Yes. Um, I was going to say one other thing to, to keep an eye on with dialogue is that all your characters don't sound the same. So it's actually, oh, again, yeah. this is something that you learn through practice. Um, but, for example, if you have three characters in your novel who are who are basically from a similar background, mm. um, you know, similar age, et cetera, et cetera, you need to think about how that character would speak, what words that character would use, mm. and give them some vocal tics yes. just so that – people know exactly where they are and you can't swap the kind of, you know, swear words around. Like they need to have swear words or whatever that are actually just individually unique to them so that it's, it's a just, it's a, it's a way to show, show a character without necessarily having to, you know, so that they don't all sound the same. It's yeah, important. absolutely. Mm. All right. So, um, like I said, we will put that link in the show notes. But let's move on to our competition this month because we have a month-long competition which we're so excited about. It's an awesome yeah, competition. It's going nuts too. It's going, going off. It's just everywhere. Can't wait to award the winner, mm-hmm. to announce the winner. It's your chance to bring your creativity to the surface. And we have partnered with our wonderful friends at Microsoft Surface uh, because they've got a whole range of fantastic Surface devices. I have one myself and I think it's awesome. I use it to uh, do video editing. I use it to create courses. I use it to do social media, to provide feedback to students. Uh, And I carry it everywhere with me and it's fantastic. Uh, But the one that we're giving away is the Surface Pro 4, which is valued at $2,799. And you can do all sorts of things with your Surface because one of the great things, apart from doing what a regular computer can do, it has a Surface pen which is like a stylus and you can draw on it so sometimes when I'm mind mapping my um, articles or my stories I don't and I don't have a pen and paper with me I simply draw on the surface of my surface just like I would on paper and I just keep it uh, you know in my OneNote app so it's a fantastic tool and you can win your own surface Uh, entries close the 30th of November and you can find out how to win. It, it's very, very easy to enter. Find out how to do that at writerscentercomau slash surface life. That's writercentercomau slash surface life. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you'd love to create your own picture book, our popular five-week course in writing picture books will show you how. In less than a few hours a week, you'll discover what you need to know about point of view in a picture book, structure and pace, as well as language and rhythm, finding the right voice, working with illustrators, publishing options and much more. Complete it online for ultimate convenience and receive personalised tutor feedback on your writing. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash picturebooks. All right, Al, you ready for our word of the week? Oh, I am. I, I don't. I actually have no idea what it is, so okay, you're so going to have look, to throw it out. I'm not looking. Okay. I'm not looking. I'm ready. Ready? I'm ready. Neo- neologism. 
Neologism. N-E-O-L-O-G-I-S-M. Neologism. Am I saying it right? Neologism. Yeah. Neologism. Yeah. Could be neologism. It could. I suppose Mm -hmm. if you said it quickly, it would be neologism. Mm. Mm. Neologism. It could so be. many options, Valerie. <laughs> so <many laughs> Might have been a good idea to research that before we started yeah. recording. Anywho, do you know what, what does it, it mean? This word that we cannot pronounce. Okay. Well, the Macquarie Dictionary says that it is a a new word or meaning or usage or phrase. Now, this has particularly come to the fore in the last, in, you know, recent years. Well, I mean, it happens all the time because language evolves. But some recent examples of neologisms are crowdsourcing. Now, that was a word you never heard 10 years ago, right? Mm. Yeah. Uh, metrosexual. Or, yeah, or crowd, well, there was crowd surfing, but, you know, crowdsourcing, which of course uh-huh. is referring to when you crowdsource or get the wisdom of crowds to either give you ideas or to fund a project, in, and that's a common usage of it. There's also metrosexual. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, those guys who are metrosexuals. Yeah, I'm all over it. <laughs> <laughs> and what I like doing on the weekend, chillax. Oh, chillax. Okay. Yes. If you're 15 and you're chillaxing, good on you, Val. Hey. It's a bit like Netflix and chill, but we won't go there. No, it's rela- It's chill and relax. Know what it is. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. it's quite different to Netflix and chill, so it's fine. <laughs> okay, so yes, that is the word of the week. And if you're using uh, the word of the week in one of your blog posts, then please make sure you ping us on social media because we would love to see the context in which you've used it. So there you go. Thanks for that, Val. Shall we move on to our writer in residence? <laughs> Let's. <laughs> Our writer in residence, so exciting, wonderful, wonderful lady, fantastic, you know, prolific author, is Wendy Orr, who, of course, has written for children and young adults and adults. She's written a whole range of of stories uh, and has released them in Australia and Canada and the US and all over the world. She's probably most well-known for uh, the book... Um, Nim's Island, which was mm. turned into a Hollywood feature film starring Jodie Foster and the very lovely Gerard Butler. Mm. And then there was a sequel, which was also released, called Nim at Sea. And, um, yeah, she's we, we had a chat to her about a whole range of things, how she got into um, how she got into the world of writing after being an occupational therapist and, mm. of course, about her latest book. So let's have a listen to Wendy Orr. So, Wendy, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, what a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you. Now, there's so many questions that I want to ask you. <laughs> so I think perhaps if we can get started with before, you know, getting into writing the many books that you've written, can you tell us, did you actually want to be a writer when you were younger? Oh, yes, yes. I was one of those children that uh, from the time that I learned to read and write in English, uh, which was when I was seven, um, that's when I really, I think, decided I wanted to be a writer. Mm. And I, I kept to that until I got to high school and thought, 
oh, this is so weird. I don't think that you could, you know, really be a writer. How could somebody make a living? And I sort of put it aside for a while. And then, so what was the turning point? When did you then decide, I can actually make this a real thing? I was um, actually crossing a road with a friend going out to lunch and she said, did I tell you I've written a book? Wow. And I thought, when am I going to do that? Mm. And um, I was actually uh, doing a, a little course at the time. I was an occupational therapist, and I was just doing a, a specific course on um, on a type of test. And um, I thought I'd like to go on doing something else because you know I just had two kids and a job, and and you know mm. my husband's farm. Um, but I'd like to do something else. And when she said this, it just sort of clicked for me, and I thought I have to write. And, and I- yeah, yeah, go on. Please go on. Well, I, I basically I send off the last assignment of this course on um, uh, Christmas Eve uh, that year, and I um, started writing on probably January twenty, probably January second. I also January first, but that's unlikely. It was probably <laughs> January second. Well, and what age were you at the time? Thirty-two. Okay, so at that time, did you know you were going to write children's books or did you try adult or, you know, how did you make that first step? I just was doing everything. I I hadn't particularly thought of children's books, um, but my own children were little. They were four and and six, I think, when I started. and so I was kind of steeped in children's books, and I used picture books at work. Um, but I, I started writing, oh, everything under the sun just about. <laughs> I also, this friend had actually written a Mills and Boone. That wasn't actually published, but she got through to, you know, asking for the full manuscript. And, mm. um, and I thought, well, that's a good idea. I could write some Mills and Boone, make a lot of money, <laughs> and, um, you know, then that could help pay for writing what I want to write when I find out what that is and then I could cut down my hours at work. Mm. Um, Now, I'd never actually read a Mills and Boone, so the arrogance is absolutely unbelievable. (laughs) (laughs) And you won't believe it, they didn't want my take on their formula that sells very well. Um, (laughs) So I, my husband actually said one day, well, if you're going to if you're going to be unsuccessful, you might as well be unsuccessful doing something you like. <laughs> so I gave up on the Mills and Boone plan. Okay. That's sort of positive, kind of. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I think it was kindly meant. Yes, of course. So then what was your first break then with your first book that that a publisher was interested in? Um, it was actually a picture book, of, um, Amanda's Dinosaur. And so for that first year, I experimented on all sorts of things. I did actually try one children's book because I um, I must have been coming up to 35 at that point mm-hmm. because I thought that I would, um, I would enter the Australian Vogel and yes. I would only have time to write a children's book. Uh, I, I mean, I just knew nothing. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote this book, which my kids – loved and uh, it, it didn't win this um, didn't win the Vogel amazingly enough um, I got a really detailed 
analysis with the rejection from um, Nelson, Thomas Nelson, which mm -hmm. was at that stage a trade publisher. And um, that made me think about children's books more. And then I saw this um, competition for a picture book text. And probably most of the people at the Writer's Centre already know that you don't have to draw the pictures yourself. Yeah. <laughs> book. However, I didn't know this. Um, this was the first time I had realised that you didn't have to present it as a whole. And picture books just came fairly naturally because the kids were that age. Yeah. And, um, and so I wrote Amanda's Dinosaur and it... Um, it won publication. I had to change the last line, which took me about three months. And, um, wow. Uh, but, yes, it won and it was published. And, um, and it wasn't actually an easy road after that. You think, well, there you go, you know, foot in the door. But basically the editors that I worked with there both left. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, I didn't didn't publish anything else with Scholastic, but um, yeah, and but it was my break. So when you first saw that book, do you, re I mean, because you've written so many books since, but do you remember the when you got the news or when you first saw it in your hands? Oh, my goodness. I don't think that anybody would ever forget that first acceptance and first book. Um, the letter was... A rather strange letter, to be honest. Okay. Uh, it's long enough ago I'm going to sort of tell the truth about the letter. Please do. <laughs> we said something like, well, thank you for entering this competition. You know, the standard was basically pretty awful. Um, <laughs> but I'm delighted to tell you that um, you and somebody else have, have won. And we decided not to award the first prize outright because you have to change the ending. But, you know, sort of. Good luck and congratulations. I mean, my <laughs> husband actually opened it while I was at work, so he could phone me at work. The letter is all crumpled up because he was so upset at the start and then got to the, the very bottom. Said, <gasps> oh, well, we're going to publish it. <laughs> How bizarre. And, look, I don't think they said pretty awful, but it, yeah. that was pretty much what they said. Goodness. And so he phoned me at work. And said, you're going to be published. And a neighbor told me that he'd driven right up their driveway, on still on the tractor, waving this letter, saying, when is getting a book published? Oh, wow. <laughs> That's gorgeous. So you got that book published, and then after that, you said you didn't publish again with them, but how did things flow after that? Did Was it long um, before you got your second book? Because you said you wanted – what's interesting is that you said you wanted to become a writer at 32, then three years later it finally happened at 35. What was the next step, just so that we get a little bit of idea yeah. of the momentum? Well, I thought that – you know, I would go on writing picture books, you know, and somehow this, the first book had flowed quite easily. So, you know, oh, this is easy, I can do it. Mm -hmm. And I started writing, you know, various picture book manuscripts and um, a lot of them came close, but it was a period of high flux in the publishing industry. Mm -hmm. So this was um, about 89 it's the first because Amanda's Dinosaur was published in '88, so like one book um, 
was given a, a, a letter of offer with sort of a contract was going to follow from Heinemann. And then they were, I, might, I better not say the publisher's names, all right. Everybody wipe that from your ears because I don't remember who took over who. But basically one publisher said, we love this little book. However, we've just accepted one very similar. Mm. Then another publisher said, yes, we love this. We're going to send you a contract. Then they said, we've just been taken over by this company, and there is a book that's very similar. Oh. And so there was a lot of things like that. Yeah. Um, and I then I sent something to Thomas Nelson, which the day I sent it changed from being a trade publisher to an educational publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, and they actually accepted quite a lot of things. Now, not all of them were published. There was a lot of upheaval there, too. Um, and But it actually gave me a little bit of an apprenticeship working with some editors, and that was very valuable. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I was sending out, you know, other things, and... I believe that the next book that was actually accepted was Ark in the Park, which wasn't published for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. It was, Ark in the Park is 3,000 words, which, again, going back to the fact that I knew nothing about publishing, I didn't know that there were standards uh, of length. Or yeah. <laughs> I just wrote what I saw. Mm. So I wrote this little book. And um, I sent it off, and about 10 publishers said, well, it's very sweet, but it's the wrong length. Mm. And I sent it to Kathy Tasker, who had actually been the commissioning editor for mm. Amanda Dinosaur, and she was now at HarperCollins. Mm-hmm. And um, so I sent it to HarperCollins. It found its way to her, and she said, it's a lovely little book. Let's publish some books this length. She had another manuscript that was also a similar length. I don't know if it came in at the same time. It took about, oh, I think it was about five years um, in the process. All right. Um, and, um, yeah, then she started this series of sort of highly illustrated little tiny chapter books of about 3,000 words. And quite a few publishers wrote to me after it one book of the year to say, um, we were thinking of doing some books that are about 3,000 words. Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> um, so, and then that was my true break. Um, mm-hmm. Kathy Tasker was there for a number of years, mm-hmm. and she published a lot of my books. Oh, that's wonderful. And, of course, she's one of our teachers at the Australian Writers' Centre. So, yeah, it's great. She's she's teaching picture books and children's books. And uh, so, yeah, that's great to hear. Now, I would like to touch on Nim's Island, which, of course, is one of the books you're most well-known for. It, it's huge. Now, you, I read that when you were nine years old, a child, you wrote a book, his nine-year-olds do, and you said that it was probably what was really the first draft of Nim's Island. So can you tell us first a little bit about that, but then also when was the first draft, you know, as an adult, like the, 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 adult real, draft, yes. the real draft? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, it is true. Um 
I, we were actually heading out to see my grandparents um, on a ferry near Vancouver Island and um, when I was nine. My mum and I are guessing that I was nine. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we went past this little tiny island and I decided I would like to run away and live on an island. And um, I don't think I was particularly unhappy or anything. It just appealed to me. Yeah, okay. And so when we went back, we lived in the prairies, in the Canadian prairies, and so, you know, no water, no islands. Um, and when we went back, I started writing this little book that I called Spring Island. And because I was very enamored of Band of Green Gables at the time, mm. um, she ran away from an orphanage. Mm-hmm. And uh, to live on this island, and then a little boy ran away from his orphanage to run, uh, and they lived on the island together until after a year or so, my interests changed, and they got adopted and got horses. Mm. Um, so, so in name was published in '99. So I guess I started playing uh, with the idea around '97, mm-hmm. and oh. Sorry, it actually would have started at the end of 95 because mm-hmm. Ark in the Park won Book of the Year in 95 for junior fiction. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was getting, you know, a lot of mail, as you do. And one week I got letters from two girls, as far as I know, had nothing to do with each other or, you know, went from the same school or anything. Mm-hmm. But they wrote kind of identical letters saying, could you please write a book about me? And I wrote back, you know, politely and said, well, I, I can't do that. That's not how I write. And, you know, why don't you write a book about you? <laughs> and but, you know how it goes. You, you start playing with something. Something just strikes you and, and, and you think, well, you know, what if a child wrote to an author and the author said, well, I couldn't write a book about you because I'm a very important author. <laughs> and your life would be very boring because you're a little girl. <laughs> well, you know, but what if the little girl's life was much more interesting than the author's? Mm. And so I started thinking about it, and it was immediately obvious to me that the little girl's life was more interesting because she lived on an island. And so I started playing with that, and at the start, it was going to be done entirely in letters and journals. Mm. So it absolutely failed to come to life. <laughs> and then I really, I, I remember doing this quite consciously, remembering not so much the story I'd written, which of course was still stored in my mother's treasure drawer in Canada, um, but remembering being the feeling of being the nine-year-old who was writing that story. And I remembered some little things like, um, you know, making dishes out of mussel shells and mm. um, shells and things like that. And I think, I don't think I actually worked it out consciously then, but I, what I was tapping into was that subconscious uh, desire to be resourceful and sort of strong and brave. Mm. And, um, oh, it must have been about the 12th draft I, I went back and I wrote it as, it as it starts now, sort of in in a palm tree on an island in the middle of the wide blue sea lived a girl. And I, I remember sort of thinking that line in the morning and I went and wrote a, a substantial part of the manuscript, certainly, mm-hmm. if not all of it. Wow. And I remember thinking, if, 
um, oh, I don't mean all at once, no. But, but, <laughs> sorry. but before I got brave enough to show my publisher again, and but I remember thinking, even even in the first few pages, if this isn't right, I can't do this book. This yes. is how it has to be. And I don't believe there was actually an awful lot of editing on it. You know, I mean, of course, it went back and forth over the you know year or so, but. I, I don't remember big changes once I finally got that. Mm-mm. And um, it's it's it, did you imagine it would be as successful as it was? Oh goodness, no. As it is, yeah. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, I mean, you sort of always have hopes for your books, but um, and by that stage, I had, of course, been shortlisted three times and in one once and on a book once so so I you know I did know a bit more about the ways of the world <laughs> um but no so of course I, I hoped it would have been shortlisted which it never has been in in, in Australia yeah, it's only overseas that it's won awards <laughs> well, um, when did you find out can you remember when you found out that it was definitely going to be made into a movie? And, of course, it became the Hollywood film with Jodie Foster and Jared Butler and was very successful. Do you remember the, how, how that happened? Oh, strangely enough, I, I do. Um, I mean, it started with an email. And uh, what was lovely about it well, two things, actually. One was that it was the first email I got asking for film rights. Um, And because I have a terrible feeling I probably would have agreed to anyone. Um, (laughs) And and I did have, um, I believe, there were two or three requests after um, after I got Paula's letter. So Paula Major wrote to me and she wrote me the most beautiful letter. It was, it was, if nothing else had happened, it was a beautiful fan letter. Mm-hmm. You know, she'd got it out from the library for her son. Um, it was just on that edge of being a little bit hard for him to read at eight. She was just going to start him reading, but she liked it so much. She kept on reading and her daughter came in and the two fat cats and her husband who was also Canadian mm-hmm. and we live by the sea and she she told me later you know she put in everything she could that would relate to me uh-huh. um and but I think that says a lot about the craft of storytelling you know she looked me up she yes. said she likes the sea she's she was born in Canada you know she likes animals mm-hmm. I'm gonna build her this beautiful story of the family being captured in their house by the sea by my story mm-hmm. and then she said please no I'm writing to inquire about the film rights mm-hmm. and, and I can ah! <laughs> yeah I bet and I, and I phoned my agent and my agent wasn't home and, and so of course I couldn't wait two minutes or anything you know I sort of emailed back immediately I said well my agent isn't home or isn't in her office, but I'm pretty sure we haven't sold the film rights. I thought I would remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and then I forwarded it to mum and dad. I go, oh, mum and dad, look at this. Oh, wow. And so a minute later, the producer, Paula, emailed back and said, oh, I'm pretty sure the one to mum and dad wasn't to me. Oh, my God. <laughs> And I said, well, at least I didn't try. I told you I wasn't going to try to be cool. I had said, I'm not going to pretend. This is very exciting. So, so we actually became really good friends, which made the whole process um, 
just so much easier. Yes. And then you've got such great stars in it as well. It's just, well, yeah, was that I mean, surreal I mean, when you saw it on the screen? Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and look, the whole process was very slow because Paula Mazur was an independent producer. So she, what she was asking for there, I had no idea how far away this was from having a film. She was asking for the right to pitch it. Mm. And she actually had interest from four companies, which was phenomenal. Mm. Um, but, and I think so much of that is because she was so passionate about the book, and we talked about the pitch a lot. Um, yeah. I wanted what was in the in in the first script. Um, my vision was that the first time you saw Alex Rover, the author, the the shot would come in through the clouds and she's in a high-rise apartment and so the the clouds are around this high-rise so she's mm. also on her own island. Mm. And what's amazing is I always say that I have no visual imagination and I do see my books but I, I'm not, you know, strong on, on the, the visual part of it, I don't think. And... As soon as I knew we were talking about a movie, I just started seeing everything in <laughs> visual <laughs> images. And Paula told me that that image was one of the things that, that took the pitch over the line. Wow. Which was fabulous. Now, the, the final script changed it. But um, we, she went with Walden Media and... I think at Christmas time we we knew that we were definitely getting it, but the day that she told me that Walden Media was going to make us an offer that day, um, my agent rang and so I've just been given two tickets to see Holes at a um, sort of question and answer teacher screening, and Lewis Satter was going to be there, and of course that had just been produced by Walden Media. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it just seemed like the most incredible omen. We went off to see this. And I was actually so nervous. I did not have the nerve to, to go up and introduce myself. I think partly because there was somebody in the audience who was a little bit spacey, let's say. And he <laughs> stood up and did a long rant about how he was a writer and a screenwriter, but he didn't want to dumb himself down for Hollywood. And I just mm. I, I just can't go up and say, look, you know, your studio is making me an offer today. You know, just sound like another nutter. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I so regret not having gone up and said hello. And everyone has said, oh, for pity's sakes, why didn't you go and introduce yourself? <laughs> oh, my. And the final one I'll say about that is that it then takes a long, long time before you get the green light. Mm, yes. And so basically we didn't get the green light till Jody had signed and there was a lot of stuff going on with that because Jody wanted the part mm. and she had to really really fight for it uh, which is yeah bizarre but anyway which is great it was fantastic but it was just really strange that she had to fight so hard mm. and there was a lot of stuff going on with all the studios and um and then finally I was I was actually out at something with my agent and Paula was trying to phone me and I don't know what happened. I just never managed to get this phone call. I, you know, I kept trying to call her back and I remember coming home on the train 
it's a long, we're quite a long way from town, you know, the, the two hours on the train and the drive after that. And what, what is she saying? I think I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I got home and there was a message on the answering machine. And she said, it's Paula. I've got good news for you, girlfriend. Oh. And when I called her back and she said, we got the green light. And I said, I guessed. She said, how did you guess? <laughs> <laughs> so it was, yeah, it was, it was just so exciting, and I think partly because we worked together very closely. Yeah, and of course that became very successful. And now uh, there's also the sequel. How, can, can you tell us how that all came about? Um, well, Paula had wanted to. Um, uh, to option uh, Nimitz C right mm-hmm. from the start. Um, but it got very messy. Um, I just like publishers, studios change heads and they have new ideas and, um, the, you know, the new head wasn't quite so keen on doing movies on 11-year-old girls. And mm-hmm. um, so that option was actually returned. And so an Australian company... Uh, with Paula had some relationship with with this Australian film company, and they bought the rights and made Return to Nim's Island, which had to be quite different from Nim at Sea because the budget for Nim at Sea would have just been massive. Right. <laughs> you know, I I wrote it because it was just the story that I saw next, um, and so. What they did was they really remained true to Nim herself and Nim's sort of ethos and way of being. Mm. And um, when I read the final script, I said, look, it's, you know, I, I know it's not the script really from the book I wrote, but it's absolutely a story I could have written. You know, mm. it's so Nim. I was, I was really pleased with it. And by the time I saw the the movie itself, we had a little premiere up at Australia Zoo. And because, of I, course, it starred Bindi Owen. Oh, who's just so fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, just so perfect for the part. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, sitting there, I really totally forgot that this wasn't the story I'd written. You know, <laughs> it's so much my name. Um, mm. So, and, and then I did write the third one, which is... It, its future is still in flux, but yeah, Rescue on Nims Island is, is out there as a book. Mm. And so now you started off as an occupational therapist and then you thought, oh, I'm going to write this book. But obviously when you first did your first picture book, you were still an occupational therapist, I'm assuming. <laughs> yes. At what point did you make a full transition to writing? Uh, well, I did it a bit dramatically. I don't remember. I, I don't recommend this one. I broke my neck. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. So, um, so, so I'm I'm not a quadriplegic, but I did break. It wasn't a simple just. Uh, it wasn't a simple break. So I had a lot of other damage, um, and so I eventually had to give up being an OT. Yeah. Uh, and but um, <laughs> this is this is. The, the symbolism here would just be too shonky to use in fiction. It took me two years to actually admit that I couldn't go back to work. Mm. I was on sort of sick leave without pay in the end. Mm. Um, and um, 
the day that I cleaned out my office, sort of officially resigned and cleaned out my OT office, um, was the day that uh, the shortlist was announced and for and leaving it to you was my first book shortlist and that was and that's why I'd, I actually made an appointment to see a psychologist for when I'd finished cleaning out my office mm-hmm. uh, because I, I it was really hard and uh, so this I couldn't drive of course this friend drove me to the hospital, then drove me to the psychologist's office. And, of course, this was before mobile phones. This was 93. Yeah, yeah. And um, the receptionist met me, and she said, your husband's been leaving messages for you. It's something about a short list. <laughs> and <laughs> that was a waste of a grief-counselling appointment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh jeez! <laughs> just fabulous that uh, you know I, I I felt I could say I was a writer. Yes, yes. Now tell us about your latest book, Dragonfly. Just for you know those listeners who maybe haven't read it yet, what's it about? Well, Dragonfly Song is the story of an outcast girl in ancient Greece. She lives on a small island, um, and she has a. a it, it's the, this is the only place where it sort of verges into a bit of, a little bit of fantasy. She has an ability to call snakes in particular, but about other animals as well. Um, sometimes just mentally, because through trauma she is mute. Mm. But the singing sometimes so sometimes she does communicate mentally, and sometimes the singing breaks through. It's, it's very limited. It really only happens to her in times of stress. She doesn't have this sort of constant communication with animals. Mm. Um, her life is so terrible that she really volunteers to go as one of the tribute that this island pays to Crete, where drawing on the story of Theseus and the Minotaur were the... Um, Seven youths and seven maidens were taken from Athens as tribute to be fed to the Minotaur, mm. the sort of bull-headed man-beast. Um, uh, these, I've, I've decided that if Crete took tribute from one place, it probably took it from anywhere that they, that the sort of Cretan navy ruled, and. Um, so I've decided that the tribute is actually trained up to be bull leapers in, in the famous fresco from Knossos in, in Crete of a girl and two young men leaping over the back of a bull. Mm-hmm. And this is a motif that's repeated over and over in, in Cretan, in the known sculpture and jewellery mm. and everything. Uh, it was obviously very significant. And um, and so I decide she becomes one of the tribute and becomes a bull leaper in Crete. So I mean, it was a, it, it is an unusual book, I, I admit, and it's written partly in free verse because it sort of really decided it wanted to be, and I decided that it was too complex to be written entirely in free verse. So I mixed I mixed free verse and um, uh, and prose. Mm. And so when you think of your, before you start writing your books, 
do you just start with a premise or with, for example, Dragonfly, um, did you already map out what the whole story before you started writing? How do you approach your writing process? I map a lot more than I used to. Mm. Um, I used to be afraid that mapping a story out would uh, really just sort of kill the magic or something. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that I wrote one one manuscript, and I actually don't remember what it was, but that I felt that I had done that, that I had really killed it. Oh. Um, and But I've realized now that I do actually plan quite a lot mentally. Mm-hmm. And, and this this was, you know, quite a complex book. Well, I, and yeah, I've written other ones that are complex actually. Um, I think I have to have a pretty good idea of the thread. Um, so I really knew. I really knew. I think the whole story pretty well by the right. time I started writing it. I did start it five years earlier. Oh, and then I put it aside. For rescue on Nims Island, mm. um, and I, I wasn't completely sure I had the tone the way I wanted, and that was partly because I kept hearing it in verse and kept transposing it into prose. And so when I started again this time, I had one go again, and then I thought, no, I'm going. That was when I said I would give up and and just do it the way that I wanted to. Um, but this one was the most thorough plan that I'd made for a first draft and that was partly because I was being rather slow with it and um, my editor said well do you know how about say August for you know showing us your whole first draft Mm. is that possible Mm. and I think I felt like I had about five years worth of first draft to write still (laughs) and I sat down and I outlined all the scenes that needed to happen and and how many days. Wow. <laughs> um, but the other thing that I did that I've never done before was usually I've discussed, well, usually I've actually written the whole book before I've shown it to the publisher, but I've often talked about it with my editor. Yep. And so sometimes it's contracted before I've finished. And, yep. um, but we talked about this one quite a bit and she said, well, could you write me just a little blurb to take to the publishing meeting? She said, you know, don't, don't spend more than an hour on it. So I took three days and <laughs> I wrote what was way too long, you know, for a synopsis to hand in to a publisher. Yeah. Um, but that is the luxury that I was working with the editor who's been thinking about this story with me four or five years before this. Yeah. And, um, so I sent her the whole three pages and, and she presented something neater, I presume. But I know, surprise, surprise, I couldn't believe how useful it was to write that synopsis. Mm. Um, and I th- but I do think the part of it was because, as I say, it had been in my head for so long. Yes, um, yes. And, but even as I wrote the synopsis, the reason it took me so long to write, I remember coming up, to, you know, as I was describing the ending or near the ending, and I thought, that's not going to work at all. <sighs> but until I actually wrote that down, yeah, um, I, I hadn't seen it. Mm. So, um, yeah, I, I am, the, I mean, the new one that I'm starting now, um, 
I'm do I'm doing sort of a bit of alternately sort of starting the beginning and then and making and making the plans. What can um, you What can you tell us about the new one? The about your next one. The next one. It, it's set in in pretty much the same world as Dragonfly Song. It's actually two hundred years earlier. Oh, um, Dragonfly Song is set in, in about fourteen fifty mm-hmm. um, BCE, and um, this next one, whose title I don't know, um, I've been calling it Saffron, which is no longer the name of the girl, mm-hmm. so it really doesn't make much sense at all. Um, and it's set in sixteen twenty five BCE. Uh, which is the time that the Santorini volcano exploded. Um, and I, I went to Crete and Santorini and did some did some research and actually have ha- have had to slightly change my synopsis because of that, because the very latest research has changed some things quite significantly. Mm-hmm. Um, about yes, it, it it will be the main character will be a girl again, and um, it it won't. Ha- I don't. I don't believe it's going to have that little touch of fantasy that Dragonfly Song had. Right. Um, but who knows? Do you typically only work on one book at a time, or do you are you editing while one book while you're writing another book? Is there a crossover? I've usually had a crossover, and Dragonfly Song was so all-consuming, I didn't do anything else. Right, yeah. Um, uh, which means uh, that I also don't have anything else to edit now, as I've worked this new one. So <laughs> this one um, will will also end up being like that. Um, and and well, when when when's it out? <laughs> <laughs> Not sure. I, I believe we'll be aiming at at July two thousand eighteen. Oh, okay. Wow. All right. Because I'm just, I'm just starting. Okay. I'm a and, very slow writer. And so, finally, what's your um? What would your advice be for aspiring writers who hope to be in a position like you are one day? You know, hope to make the change, maybe from being a occupational therapist or something else, <laughs> and moving into writing. Well, okay, some of my advice is a little bit contrary. I think that having, if you can work part-time and have some form of outside income, Mm. I think that can actually help your writing because to write anything really good, you have to to be prepared to fail badly. Right. Um, And because... It, it, because you have to experiment. Mm. Now, I mean, there's, there are lots of people who, you know, certainly make much more money than I do, sell many more books, and they do not take this advice. And they, you know, have honed what they want to do, and they do that. Mm. So it's, it's a personal thing. But I believe that you want to go on experimenting. I mean, Dragonfly Song was a huge risk. You know, it was very different what I'd done before. Um, and But it was something I just felt I really had to do. Mm. Uh, and so, I, yeah, I do believe that a little bit of outside income so that you can write what you want. I mean, failure is horrible. You know, you pour your heart and soul into a book <laughs> and it, it's, it's horrible. Mm-hmm. But you have to be prepared to risk it. 
And so, I, I yeah, that is something I believe. I do think that the other thing about you know maybe working two or three days of work uh, a week also gives you some social interaction. Yes, of course. Um, so, you know, which which matters. Um, so I think my other advice, you know, really is sort of leading on from that. You know, I do try and do what you really want. Uh, I mean, look, it's a good idea to learn more than I did at the start. But, um, <laughs> you know, as I say, I knew nothing. But we lived, you know, we lived on a farm. I was I was working. Um, I had no no means of, you know, going to Melbourne regularly or you know, yeah. meeting writers or anything. Um, and that world is quite different now where things are online and, yeah. you know, things like this. So certainly you do want to learn as much as you can about the craft, the craft and the business. Yeah, for sure. Without a doubt. But I like um, what you say. You do have to experiment, and I think that's so true. And uh, it's not going to happen overnight, but it's something that you need to explore and hone. So um, thank you so much for sharing your story and your and your insights into the world of writing today, Wendy. Really appreciate it. Oh, well, it was fun. I never quite know what I'm going to come up with till I say it. So <laughs> it was very, very interesting hearing your questions. That was awesome. Thank you. There you go, Wendy Orr. What a great interview. And, you know, the thing that I think is fantastic, like she has that classic um, novel, and it is a classic, an Australian classic, classic Nymph mm. Island. Um, and, of course, her new book came out recently. And it's probably – it's only in the last six months or so mm. that she's really been making a huge effort with her online profile. Like right. I've connected with her on Twitter and Instagram and a whole range of different places. Mm. She's been looking at upgrading her website. She's got a whole lot of stuff going on. And she's really – like. I'm seeing her where I wasn't seeing her six months ago, and I think it's fantastic that she's that she's taking to that and she's making the effort with that. I think it's great to see. Yeah, it pays off too, you know. As well, I say, yeah. if you're all seeing her where you didn't before, obviously many other people are many as other well. Many so as well. It's great. Yeah. yeah, terrific. All right. Well, she's obviously doing something good, something in a positive direction to build her author platform, which brings us to a link that you have for us, Al? Oh, I do. Um, so I found a link uh, during the week and it's uh, from uh, digitalbookworld.com oh, yes. and it was called Seven Tips for Avoiding Book Marketing Trends That No Longer Work. Mm. And we'll include the link in the show notes. But I think it's one of those things that the reason I wanted to bring it up was because I think sometimes um, with anything, we tend to put together a bit of a set and forget um, kind of mentality towards whatever it is that we're doing, whether it be writing, book marketing, whatever. Um, and I think that what I think this particular blog post shows is the importance of actually continually um, always sort of assessing what's working for you and what's not, mm. having a look at the different trends that are around. I guess it's a little bit like me with Instagram in that sense of, you know, I tried it a couple of years ago. I really disliked it. I walked away from it and then mm. I've gone back to it because, you know, it, um, it became something I probably couldn't ignore anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and now that I've actually put some thought into learning how to use it properly, um, I'm actually really enjoying it and I'm finding that it's working really well for me. So some of the things that they suggest that we avoid uh, with book marketing at the yeah. moment is um, 
well, they talk about generic anything, yeah. uh, you know, that got a thousand, you know, impersonal messages and ads every day. We get sort of random, like even, even when you sign up for a newsletter, sometimes you get stuff that you think, well, well how did I end up on this list? Surely yeah. I didn't even sign up. And it's because we're sort of getting blasted with stuff that that doesn't really matter to us. Um, so they're suggesting that you know per, that you personalise everything, and that's all the way from your emails. Like, don't send dear sir or mm. dear madam emails. Um, you know, like make the effort to find out which publisher, which agent, which you know, which contact it is that you need to um, to be in contact with. Like, which editor at the magazine that you're trying to contact or which publisher, um, and put a name on everything. It just makes such a difference, I think, to how people feel. Um, and the other thing, one that I found that was quite interesting was this notion that, um, you know, expecting social media to sell books. Because I think a couple of years ago, it's that whole buy my book mentality where mm. people were sort of like thinking if they blasted out messages about their books on social media, that that would immediately relate to sales and yeah. that you would be able to see a, you know, that, that you would, if you had 2000 um, followers on Twitter, well, then you should get 2000 sales, which is not the way that social media really works. I think people sometimes forget that there's a social in social media. Yeah. Uh, and mm. I think the important thing to remember is that social media is about boosting your visibility, a little bit like Wendy, um, you know, who obviously has an amazing, fantastic catalogue and a terrific reputation. Yes. But what she's doing is using social media to boost her visibility around, you know, the launch of her new book. And I think that um, it's really important to remember that aspect of social media when you're working on your platform, that it's not necessarily about you know, one tweet equals one book sale. It's about, you know, making conversations, connections and engaging with people to boost mm. your, vis your visibility. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's worth having a read of, um, of, these, uh, of these points because one of the interesting things that it says is bad blogging, avoid bad blogging. Um, yes. it, and it says blogging is important and many of us would blog for the sake of blogging. And the thing is, there is, I'm very much of the mind now, it's not so much about frequency, it's definitely about quality. So if you're only going to put out a post every three weeks or it, as opposed to, you know, sometimes at one point people were being told it should be three times a week. Just make sure it's a quality mm. one and people will keep on coming back and reading it. Bad blogging. Mm. Not good. Bad blogging. Mm. And there's a lot of it out there. Yes. So some fantastic tips here, but also uh, even more fantastic tips in Alison Allison's course, How to Build Your Author Platform, which is all about the exact steps you need to take to start building your author platform, to start building your profile and your brand as an author. And the most important thing with that is that the biggest mistake people make is they think, I'll finish my book first. And mm. then once it's published, then I'll build my author platform. By then it's too late. If you are, I mean, if, you, if you've released your book and you still haven't built your author platform, absolutely get started. But you will get much more leverage and much more results if you start building your author platform, even while you are still writing your book, even yeah. while the book is a mere idea in your head. That's so right. I encourage you to check it out. And you can find out more about Alison's course at Writer writerscentercomau slash platform. Mm. It's writerscentercomau slash platform. 
All right. So we're almost at the end of this week's episode. Al, what are you doing in the coming week? Well, um, I've got quite a few things to do that came out of my meetings and workshops and things that I did last week. Um, so I'm going to be working on some, uh, putting together some packages to to go out with my for my screenwriting project. Oh, cool. uh, so I'll be doing some work on those. I'm, obviously, I'm I'm working on the draft for book two in my new series mm. as part of my NaNoWriMo efforts. Um, I'm actually working. Here you go, Val. Yes. I'm writing a bridal feature. Are you serious? I am serious. I am right. I'm interviewing a couple of brides and okay. a few different people. Yeah. So I'm working on that at the moment. Okay. Um, and uh, what else am I doing? Oh, I'm structurally editing. I'm doing a little tweak on a structural edit. And then I've got a copy edit coming in as well. So I'm pretty busy. Oh, at the moment. my God. I feel anxious yeah. just listening to that. I'm just going through You know, I, I woke up this morning and I thought I really don't want today to begin. And then I've mm. just gone through it step by step. I've got my day divided up into half hour increments. Yeah, right. And that's what I'm doing. And wow. you know what? It's the only way. If, you, if you're feeling overwhelmed and you can't find that, you know, you're struggling to, to fit your writing in or whatever it is that you're doing, mm. one step at a time half hour increments. That's all I can say. Yeah, fantastic. Mm. Well, I can't reel off a whole list like that because I am at the stage where I need to figure out what I'm doing. Because, Ooh. yeah, I got home, I got back to Sydney late last night uh, after spending a few days in Melbourne and it was it was full on. Like it was from morning till 10.30 at night, it was just go, 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 go. And I honestly have not had time to breathe. And I feel like I just need to sit somewhere on a rock and work out my to-do list because I'm not really quite thinking straight. Mm. So there you go. <laughs> the to-do list is a great thing. Like I, I did that last night. I, again, having that moment of anxiety, I just, I emailed myself. I sat down, I wrote an email to myself. Mm. I wrote every single thing on that email that I needed to do today. Mm. And then I, you know, I got up this morning and there it was, and I've just been deleting them as I've been going through them. So do you print it out? Do you print out that email? No, no, I just email it and then but I open it and then I delete, delete it. I just delete things as I go through them. Really? Delete, delete, so when delete. So you, when you email it to, you know, you write an email to yourself, do you go, dear Alison, this is what you need to do tomorrow? No. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of a goose do you think I am? I don't know. No, I just write it as a list and, okay. I, and I go to bed knowing that it's all on the list and I don't need to lie awake thinking, oh, yeah. what about that? Oh, oh, what about that? Oh, what will I remember to do that? So it's just But don't just, you forget that. things just, like... I write things down and then I'll go to bed and I'll think of a new thing. No, I don't go to bed till I'm pretty sure that my brain is empty and I've written okay. all the things down. Mm. I don't go to bed till late, you know, yeah. and then I have to take procrastinate pup out and, you oh, know, yes. you sort of do a whiz in the backyard and we yes. do all that, yes. which gives me that little bit longer just to, in case I miss something. Yes. I was hoping for a glimpse of the super moon last night, but there was clouds. Oh, no. So I know. Oh, Disappoint. Mm. Anyway. All right. Well, where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. Awesome. You- you'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And you can just connect with me on Facebook. Um, just search for Valerie Koo in Sydney. Uh, and we'd love to hear from you. We and would. in the meantime, thank you so much for listening and we look forward to chatting to you again next week. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. <laughs>